This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. It is me, your host, Nick Scheist, and thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Bad Movies We Love. I've got some season two interviews lined up, uh, so we'll get to those hopefully fairly soon. And as if I didn't have enough on my plate already, I've got two new show ideas in development, and I'll let you know more about that when we get a little bit closer to launch time, but... We are gathered here today for Season 1, Episode 4, and we're going to be talking about a movie that I never thought I'd bring to the show. However, the more I read about it, the more I learned about it, the more it became abundantly clear to me that there is quite a large number of people who do genuinely love this movie, and I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with one of them for this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this discussion on Tom Green's 2001 comedy, Freddy Got Fingered. Daddy, would you like some sausage? Kind of freaked me out back then. Shape to the chaos? The reign of terror. If somebody told me they walked out during this point, I would have been like, okay, I get it. 30 seconds or 60 seconds of usable material that you could put out. Your editor is like, you're a moron because you like this movie. That must have been the toughest trailer to make ever. Chinless, hollow-eyed pederast. Maybe this movie was just a little bit ahead of its time. We are here once again. And today, I am joined by a friend of mine on Twitter, Corey the Football Guy, Mr. Corey Carlson. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Nick. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm trying to beat the heat. It's 104, 105 degrees outside. Air conditioner, can't keep up with it. Um, But other than that, no complaints. You pitched me a couple of movies. And most of the time, I would have gone with the movie that speaks to me the most or the movie that I liked the most of that bunch. But I never expected to see Freddy Got Fingered on a list uh, that was proposed to me. And because you brought it up, I figured I might as well open the door to this conversation and give you the chance to, you know, go to bat for this film. Uh, So why don't you tell me why this movie came to mind for this Bad Movies We Love show? It really was probably the first movie that came to my mind when I thought about this and when I saw your your initial tweet kind of like putting the feelers out for people to respond and uh, give some ideas. It's always the first movie that comes to mind for that to me because in my experience, like I saw it because somebody shared it with me, um, a family member actually, 
And then after that, like any time that I've showed that movie to anybody else, they either like will not hang out with me again (laughs) or like (laughs) watch another movie with me or they just like absolutely cannot stand it. But every now and then I come across another person who throughout like topics of conversation somehow keys me into the fact that they've seen this movie and not only have they seen it, they also love it. And that is like finding a needle in the haystack, like beautiful moment. And I know immediately if somebody has seen that movie and they enjoy it, that they love it and that we're going to be friends based on that forever, because you can just go back and forth quoting this movie all day and like finally you have somebody that it clicks with and gets it so it's like this little community at least in my experience that has been built just over the two percent of the population probably that actually has seen the movie and likes it that's a good point the more i started to read about it and the more that I started to read other people talking about it, Uh, not critics, just regular people. Um, I realized like how many people like really do love this movie a lot. And that surprised me because when this movie came out, I mean, this thing was trashed. um, And that's all I had heard about it for, uh, for many, many years. And I didn't, I wasn't the kind of person that's like, I hate Tom Green, but I also wasn't like a big fan of his show either. Like I was aware of it. I had watched it on occasion. Uh, So it was never um, like a big deal for me that it was him making this movie. But uh, since this, I I mean, I've seen Tom Green do stand up at, uh, I think it was the comedy store or the laugh factory. And yeah, he's a good comedian. He's like legitimately a good comedian. It's very different than the kind of stuff he did on his show. But I think that opened the door for me a little bit more in terms of like what his comedic mind is like, because every time I had seen him on TV when I was younger, he was almost always like in character. I didn't really ever get to see him like be himself. And I know that's fine. He was he had his brand uh, on the show and like he did a lot of kind of like theatrical stuff around uh, like this film and the marketing of the TV show. Um, And I I didn't even know at the time that this was his directorial debut. Um, and he wrote this with Derek Harvey and then starred in it too. And typically like if it, if it was a movie that was coming out now and I saw that it was like, Oh, directorial debut, uh, wrote it and starred in it. I would probably already be interested because those are typically very passionate projects to, go all in on like, I'm going to be behind the camera. I'm going to be in the writer's room. I'm going to be in front of the camera. And then I'm going to be in the editing room at the end. Like that's a lot of work. It's a lot of passion that went into this. And I was, yeah, absolutely. I I was more impressed with that. I think in hindsight than I was at the time that it came out, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of like how involved he was, I think. Right. I don't think I was at the time either because I think this movie came out in what, like 99, 2000? I think 2001. I remember it. 2001. Okay. So I was like 10, 11. 
when it came out. So I don't think I was really keyed into stuff like that yet. Um, but I think that some of that, like him directing it and him writing it and it being like this um, all-encompassing project for him, I think it was more out of necessity in the end than probably anything else. And I'm sure that we'll get into that, but um, I would venture to guess that, you know, after he wrote this movie or when he pitched this movie, that he did not get a lot of people coming back to him, you know, offering to direct this or to do any of that kind of stuff for him. So I think that he felt so strongly about it that he ended up just, you know, out of necessity and out of want, like wanting to get this project to go forward that he ended up taking on all those things himself. And then speaking back to your previous comment about how you've seen Tom Green do stand up since then and how you kind of get his humor a little bit more now. Um, I think I always got it or I always thought it was funny. Um, at least a little bit. Like I never, I never saw Tom Green and was like, Oh, what's this about? But also thinking about that time in my life, I was a little bit younger too. And that kind of humor spoke to me a little bit more. Um, but I do think that in hindsight now, we can kind of see that uh, for better or for worse, Tom Green opened the door for um, some of that more like Canadian type humor to be able to come to the forefront. Like, I don't think that Trailer Park Boys and, you know, shows like Letterkenny and things like that, or comedians like Andy Dick or possibly even like Sasha Baron Cohen. I know that they're not necessarily Canadian, but humor along those same lines. I don't think that they end up where they are if not for Tom Green kind of kicking that door down with the like absurdist comedy, mm -hmm. um, ridiculous kind of stuff that he was doing at the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And in listening to him talk about it a little bit, uh, he said that the studio, I was going to say this for later, but we were just talking about it. Um, he originally pitched this movie when he uh, when he brought the original script to a Disney subsidiary and they were like, OK, we like it, but uh, we want you to change everything about it. So <laughs> he obviously didn't want to do that. And he ended up uh, they said they were going to like put the script into circulation. It ended up getting picked up by. Uh, a subsidiary of Fox at the time. I don't remember which uh, smaller studio this was, and I should have probably written it down, but whatever. He ends up at Fox, and they're like, okay, we're going to give you $18 million to do this. And at the time, like, he's experiencing a lot of the boom of his success from MTV, but, like, giving him as a first-time director, a first-time uh, feature screenwriter, and, like, a leading man in a film as well, giving him that kind of budget to just do what he wanted to do i think i have whether or not i you like the movie i think there is a way to respect how he approached this movie and he he said that like there is some stuff that's edited out but ultimately like this is very true to the kind of film that he 
wanted to make like in a vacuum right he wanted to make a script that like made him laugh made his friends laugh and make a film that embodied like you said the kind of absurdist humor that he really wanted to get across like so from that perspective like i do respect his approach to this a lot because he's like i'm gonna take this 18 million dollars and i'm gonna use it to make one of the craziest most absurd most like disgusting comedies that you could probably think of and that's the point of it so like in that way it is brilliant and I didn't necessarily like even want to think about that. I don't know if I had the capacity to think about that back in 2001 when this movie came out, like just word of mouth was so bad for it that I was like, well, I'll just wait until it comes to like cable or something. And then I hadn't seen it in 20 years since then. Yeah. I think, you know, we also have to acknowledge the way that, you know, the world has kind of moved since that time. Um, I think that it goes without saying that this movie would not get made today. Definitely not. (laughs) If it did get made, it would not be a theatrical release. It would not be backed by a major studio. Um, You would probably get absolutely ran out of the industry for making this movie nowadays. Um, So where I said before that he kind of opened the door for some of these other shows and comedians by you know, getting his type of humor out there. He also closed the door for in the future, anybody being able to kind of do the same thing on the flip side of that as well. Um, And that's not all him. I think that uh, Disney and more specifically Marvel have a lot to do with certain movies not getting made nowadays. Um, But that's an entirely different conversation. Yeah, I mean, in general, uh, big studios are typically very uh, profit-oriented right now. You see that they don't take big chances on things too often um, because the bottom line is so important. Whereas, like, the 90s was a time of a lot of spec scripts getting sold and a lot of just ideas getting bought up and then turned into movies where it's like, okay, this movie doesn't have to make half a billion dollars to be successful. We just needed to make its money back and then some. And it was just a different approach to filmmaking then. Okay. I went to screen share and I have the trailer brought up. So I don't know if you're going to be able to see it or not, but I'm going to play it anyway. You should, you should be able to hear it. Um, So you let me know. Before we continue, This episode of Bad Movies We Love is brought to you by our friends at Mr. Sister Mobile Cyst Removal. They know firsthand how difficult navigating the crumbling healthcare system can be and offer a low-cost alternative that brings the savings and the service right to you. Whether you're suffering from epidermoid cysts, sebaceous cysts, ovarian cysts, dermoid cysts, ganglion cysts, breast cysts, pilonidal cysts, baker cysts, pilar cysts, mucus cysts, branchial cleft cysts, folliculitis, chalazia, or cystic acne, Mr. Sister is here to help. Their fleet of -of top-of-the-line conversion vans is decked out with the latest surgical specialty gear, and that makes getting treatment easier than ever. So, if you've got a suspicious growth, but no insurance, or maybe your health insurance company has given you the runaround, don't wait, extra paid. Call Mr. Sister for your free consultation today at 1-555-672-9787. That's Mr. Sister. 
888-888-9787 for your free no obligation consultation today. This movie, I don't need to see anything. I can... But can you hear that okay? I can, yes. Yeah. Okay. To let go. You make your daddy proud. You hear me? I'm going to make you so proud. You make your daddy proud. Proud. Get the away! <laughs> Are you really excited about starting to work at the sandwich factory tomorrow? Hello? Can you hear me? There's probably people at the factory that have been making cheese sandwiches their entire lives, and they're going to look at me, 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 and they're going to call me a loser. Ooh, you can't hurt me. Not with my cheese helmet. Hello? He couldn't handle the complexities of making a cheese sandwich, so now it's back home. Look, I found a treasure. That's soap on a rope. Are you in the soap? Oh no, the treasure! It went into that underwater cave! He thinks different. You want to just barge into a restaurant and expect someone to give you a TV show? Uh, I don't know, um... Yeah. Hey. He talks different. I can walk backwards fast as you can. And other backwards man, the backwards man. I can walk backwards fast as you can. <laughs> what God damn are you doing? And he acts <laughs> different. No, 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 no. My plan. Give me my plan. But that's only because <laughs> he is. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that to happen. You made the move. Regency Enterprises presents. Regency, that is the production studio that was part of Fox. Yeah, there we go. Freddy got fingered. Now, if you'll excuse me, I still have some work to do. Danny, would you like some sausage? Danny, would you like some sausage? We're real proud of it. I think they could have come up with a better title. Well, there you have it. I mean, that's basically a late 90s, early 2000s trailer reel. I mean, it's got the full voiceover. I mean, it highlights a lot of what are some of the funnier moments in the film. Uh, so no real... Um, nothing like too outside the box that they actually like show there. I mean, the craziest thing is maybe, uh, what the, the deer or the, I mean, the sausage stuff yeah. isn't nearly as uh, crazy as some of the other stuff in the film. But oddly enough, the one thing that has stayed with me is that scene that closes out the trailer. And even now, like if I'm making sausage and my dog is in the kitchen with me, I'm still in my head. I'm always singing that song. Daddy, would you like some sausage? I, it's it's catchy. It's dumb. Like that whole scene is ridiculous, but that has still yeah. stayed with me like all this time. Even for a movie that really, I, I think I've seen once, and it's not the kind of film that uh, like became a cult classic for me personally. But right, that still was ingrained in my memory all this time, and still stays with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a few more things from this movie that have kind of uh, found their way into my everyday vernacular that I probably wouldn't even notice. Um, but as far as the trailer goes, uh, kudos to whoever was in charge of making that because that must have been a monumental task to sit through this movie 
and to be able to parse out 30 seconds or 60 seconds of usable material that you can put out that you can put on tv (laughs) yeah absolutely so uh props to whoever that was um i'm sure that they were adequately compensated for their time being that it's the movie industry in hollywood but uh whoever that is more power to you because that must have been the toughest trailer to make ever yeah, I mean, it does a good job of basically telling you, like, here, it's Tom Green being weird in a movie, right? And it's like, well, you know, we don't have to tell you yeah. too, much, too much more than that. He's going to do some outlandish stuff, and we're not going to show you, like, the most outlandish things, because that's what you need to buy a ticket for. I have pulled up here what is the supposedly the best parts, but I'll let you be the judge of that once we get to it. It's about five minutes or so. And I, I kind of started it at a certain point where uh, some of the stuff in the trailer was already in the beginning of this video. So we'll get to some other stuff yeah. here. Um, before I do that, though, I want to take a look at just the general perception of this film, like from a critical uh, eye at that time. This is a movie that, at least in what I'm seeing from these scores that are uh, represented here on its 13 out of 100 on Metacritic. I see two zeros, two tens, a 20, three 25s. So of the 10 that are listed here, only two of them break 50. So I'm going to start with these two that are actually I'll start with the bad ones. So let's go to the Austin Chronicles as green who looks like a chinless hollow eyed pederast at the best of times is simply out of his league here. And the fact that the film drags interminably when it's actually a very average 90 minutes long betrays its essential emptiness. This is a very like personal attack on him. Like, you know, it, it doesn't really speak to, uh, like the quality of the movie so much. It's like, I don't like Tom Green. I was forced to watch this movie. And because of that, I'm going to blame him for making me watch this movie. The one I like better than this is from the Washington Post. It says, in a sense, this is a horror film that's worse than anything Andy Kaufman could dream up in which Green tries to outgross himself. And I think, although it's a bad review, it's actually fairly accurate. And I don't even think Tom Green would be insulted (laughs) by that review itself. No, I I kind of agree with that now. Um, there were definitely things in the movie that at the time, um, I would say that I, I I did not see this movie in theaters because that, like, I, I conned my parents into taking me to a few different things at that age. Um, most notably, my dad took my cousin and I to go see uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back when we yeah. were, like, nine years old (laughs) so um but did not see this one in theaters and i think we kind of came on to it my cousin and i later on so i was probably like 12 13 um right in the pocket for where this kind of humor really would have stuck and uh i think that certain parts of it like i said were kind of freaked me out back then um there's a lot of recurring gags with the neighbor kid Mm-hmm. in the movie i'm sure we'll get to that later on and everything but even at the time like even as a kid those things kind of disturbed me a little bit they would disturb me more so now as a parent and as an adult but i 
kind of agree with this review from that sense because you know some of the things in the movie they are horrific <laughs> and yeah um, as far as like the andy kaufman kind of stuff goes like he definitely would have tried to make a movie like this too if he would have been given 18 million dollars and told to have fun uh so yeah. it's it's harsh but it's fair based and I, on the context yeah and i think the andy kaufman comparisons are actually flattering even though they're intended to be insulting miami herald just went with a little two-word pull quote here this is formidably stupid but they use the word formidably so they they recognize at least that there is intent i think in its approach i mean i know there is but i think to call something formidably stupid like you're acknowledging that there is shape to the chaos and that is one of the better reviews at a 25 uh but speaking of andy kaufman usa today says not since andy kaufman's reign of terror has a supposed funny man been so self-indulgently persistent in testing a fan's patience and i think that's a very good oh, point his reign of terror right <laughs> it's a it's a good point in that they're saying testing a fan's patience because i think that is what kaufman and green are both doing is that they know they have a certain group of fans that likes their stuff and they're trying to push the envelope, right? They're not trying to sit right. back and make the cliched comedy that is going to turn them into, uh, you know, like all of the famous comedy actors in the world. They're not trying to do the same thing that everybody else is doing. And the only way you're going to find where those boundaries are is by, testing the patience of your fans and in watching this again now like within the first five minutes the opening scene i was like if somebody told me they walked out during this point i would have been like okay i get it but i think there's probably a good percentage of people who gave up on this movie at that point and then you don't like actually get to experience it as a whole you kind of check out very early on and you've already you've already judged it before you make it all the way down to, to the deepest depths of what this film really is. Like, you don't get to see the biggest levels of absurdity that are in this film if you check out very early on. And when, when a movie like this has the kind of negativity surrounding it that this one did, I think that preconceived notion is going to alter the way a lot of people view it. But with that in mind, it's interesting that... There are some decent reviews in this group. It says, this is from the Chicago Reader, says the earnestness of some of the drama is only deceptively unsophisticated narrative, maybe more shocking than any of the gross outs. <laughs> and so I like that actually, like it's, it sees the form underneath the chaos. And it's like, this really is a story about this young man who's kind of at odds with his father who, or because he's trying to find his own way in life um and his dad is trying to push the narrative of like well this is how you live you go and you do a b and c and this is like the only way to live a right life and so there is that kind of parallel between his dad trying to force that lifestyle on him in the same way that the general critical narrative around this movie is trying to like force it into a box of like this is how comedies are this is how comedies are supposed to be and if you don't do it this way you're failing 
And so I think that is greatly reflected in a lot of the other negative reviews we've read. But I'm really glad that uh, this is Lisa Al Spector of the Chicago Reader. Uh, I'm glad that she was able to actually like see what the bones of this story are. And it has all of the bones of like a, all the other comedies of the 90s that like we've seen before. So it's not uh, right. it's not entirely unsurprising in like the the plot beats. It's just the stuff that happens in between those beats is much different than anything that we had seen really on screen at that time. And the last one I'm going to go to is the New York Times of all of the of all of the sources gave it the highest score, uh, gave it a 60 out of 100. So a D, but, you know, not in the the failure range. Uh, it says the movie's comic heart consists of a series of indescribably loopy, elaborately conceived happenings that are at, at once rigorous and chaotic, idiotic and brilliant. So this is a, a fairly positive review from the New York yeah. Times, but still only willing to give it a 60 out of 100. And in doing another one of these episodes with a friend of mine, we kind of came to the conclusion that uh, realistically, like if you're a critic and you like the movies that everybody else is hating, it's maybe not the best for your brand. And especially at the time when a lot of these reviews are all being published in like the New York Times, Chicago Reader, USA Today, Miami Herald, Daily News, like these are all people with editors who assign them yeah. <laughs> reviews to do. And if your editor is like, you're a moron because you like this movie, it's going to affect how your <laughs> career plays out after that. So I think there was more of an inclination to really like hop on board with uh, heavy waves of negativity. The IMDb score, I think, is like a four and a half or a five. So significantly better than a 13 out of 100. But that still speaks to like generally most people probably don't like this. And Tom Green was something of a niche uh, comedian anyway. But there, right. there's, a, there's a lot more to this movie than it being just a pile of garbage like it was made out to be for so many years. Yeah, I agree with that. And um, I think that, you know, hearing this and actually thinking about it in that kind of critical mindset leads me more to the kind of point of maybe this movie was just a little bit ahead of its time. and. The reason that I say that is because, you know, you're obviously, we just talked about um, like newspaper critics and stuff like that. Shortly after this movie came out, you really have like the advent of Jackass on mm -hmm. TV and in film. You have maybe four or five years after this, you have Borat. Mm -hmm. And there's not really much of a difference between the comedy and the plot and everything like that in a film like Borat, which I think, you know, was much more receptive critically. Yeah, <laughs> it was. I think people have a lot more of a positive viewpoint on Borat and on anything that Sasha Baron Cohen's done. Um, and I think that, like I said earlier, Tom Green kind of opened the door for that. But this film specifically was done a little bit of a disservice in this very specific time that it came out. Whereas nowadays, this movie, if it was made, would probably be like your direct-to-Netflix kind of comedy. And people would know more of what they were getting into beforehand. And then also you have 
the advent of the internet as being like our main source of news, our main source of entertainment and everything like that, where people can kind of speak more freely. Um, you have blogs, you have message boards that came out after this, you know, now with social media and everything too, um, it would have been received a little bit better, I think, had it come out just a little bit later after people got kind of used to the jackass, Sasha Baron Cohen um, type of comedy that came out later on. Yeah, with this being like over the top in the way that it is, I can understand it being very jarring to a lot of people. And especially like if you're not familiar with Tom Green at the time and to really just see basically every major news outlet, every major critical outlet saying that this movie is such a waste of time that it's not worth it. That's something that like I've been writing about movies for like six years now. And I used to approach it very analytically of like, oh, I want to give it uh, a score that's reflective of like how I look at it. So I'm like, okay, well, the cinematography uh, like is excellent. So that's like a nine out of 10. But then this element of the the acting is bad. And so like I started to like overanalyze it and just I realized it's not how I like to digest uh like any kind of media, really. So I stopped scoring movies altogether. I was like, this is just not something that's for me. I don't yeah. think I don't think it's fair to the film itself either, because uh, I don't think anybody necessarily sets out to make like a terrible movie, right? No one's going into the process like we want this to be bad. I know that Tom Green is looking at this like he wants it to be absurd and crazy and different than anything else that's happening, but he's not like trying to make a movie that people hate because that's not why you make movies in the first place. Um, And I think stepping back from it, I like if I were watching this now or if I were writing about it now, I should say I would give it some points of comparison like you did and be like, well, if you like stuff like Jackass or uh, Borat or Bruno or some of this other type of comedy, then you would probably want to give this a chance and not listen to the reviews. But if you're going to go into this uh, kind of like a holier than thou approach to it and you're not willing to like see the movie for what it is, then just, you know, skip it. Don't waste your time on it. But if, if there's some if there's some wiggle room for this to be an open conversation, why not go for it? Yeah. It's only, it's only um, 90 minutes. Right. I think that that's kind of what it might not have been the entire purpose of the film being made, but like we've talked about, I think that Tom Green's entire thing at the time was he's going to push the envelope. And while he didn't set out to make a bad movie, he kind of knew what was going to come of him making this movie. And he embraced that because he kind of knew that, you know, maybe this opens the door for somebody else or, you know, I'm going to see how far I can take it before people just reject it entirely. So I think that if we're looking at it from that possibly being his mission behind making it, then he succeeded in achieving that. And I even think that, you know, the, the reviews that we talked about, I think you mentioned one that was like fantastically stupid. Mm. Um, 
if I recall correctly, that might have even made it onto the theatrical release poster and the DVD and VHS boxes, um, like right on the top. That's um, a good point. Or there, I know that there's some kind of quote on there that was like a negative review from a critic, and he mm-hmm. put them on the box to the movie, and like embraced the fact that like yeah, people are are saying that this movie stinks, but you know, we're embracing that, watch it anyway. Yeah, and there's something to be said for, I mean, whether or not, like, you're a fan of, like, his art, right, what he does, whether or not you're a fan of it, there is something to be said for his artistic integrity, because, as you had mentioned, like, he's not necessarily, like, setting out to make a bad film, but he's not afraid of making a bad film either, and I think that is admirable in its way. He's not pulling punches here, really trying to appease critics, trying to win anybody over. He's like, look, I may only get one shot at this because after this movie comes out, I may never get financed to make another movie again. Uh, So I'm going to make the movie that I want to make the way that I want to make it. And it may not resonate with everybody, but for the people that it does resonate with, uh, it's going to be worth it. And, you know, for the most part, reading what people have to say has uh, been eye-opening. Seeing how many people actually, like, genuinely really love this movie was quite refreshing. Yep. And I will always respect and admire a filmmaker that doesn't do a hundred rewrites of their script and, you know, change their baby because of you know, what somebody may be telling them that they have to do for this movie. Um, I think that uh, Kevin James is a lot like that for me. Obviously, you know, Clerks has been poured over and talked about for, you know, ages ever since it came out about, you know, uh, low budget Kevin Smith made it at his own job. And like, you know, uh, this studio wouldn't, didn't want it. This studio didn't want it. So he just, you know, set out, did it on himself the best that he could. And it turns out being this like seminal cult classic comedy film. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you want to look at it on a grander scale, like Rocky, Sylvester yeah. Stallone writes that movie, you know, with, with like every penny that he has to his name. And people offer to buy it from him and recast it and do certain things with it. And he holds his ground and says, absolutely not. It ends up being one of the most successful films of all time. So I uh, I hold any artist that does that in high regard, high esteem. Yeah, and I think ultimately for Tom Green down the stretch, like, is he gonna like? Is it gonna be a situation where he looks? back on what this film was and be like, oh, I wish I had done it the way that I wanted to, or I wish it had been accepted uh, as good, even though I didn't like it. And I think the kind of person that I've heard him, well, the kind of person that I think he is based on some of the, like the real interviews I've seen him give, I think he's much more pleased to have done things the way he wanted to do it rather than, getting a mass public approval for something that he did. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that he loses a wink of sleep over having made this film. Um, I think that he set out 
to do a certain thing. I think he achieved that. And, you know, maybe because of that, he never got bankrolled to make another film or, you know, I know he was in films like Road Trip and stuff like that, um, but has never obviously had the opportunity again to make his own feature film. Uh, he directed um, one other but, movie in 2010 called Prank Star, which I had never heard of or seen. Um, but I'm more curious to give it a chance. Now. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, I I think that you know he's proud of what he did. He's proud that he did it his own way, and I don't think that he has any regret about it whatsoever. I don't think so either. And on that note, let me grab the quote unquote best parts of this movie. So this is put together by somebody who actually does like this movie or else it would be 30 seconds long, but this is about five minutes. So again, I don't know if you can see this, but if you can hear it, I'm sure you'll know what's happening in this scene. Well, if I can hear it, I'll know it. I love Rip Torn in this movie, too. Nope. Rip Torn's the best part about the movie, honestly. He is. And they, you know, that's acknowledged in the script design as well. Like, it's really about, like, the relationship between uh, Gord and his dad. Oh, this is jumping all over the place, but... Um, little behind on the buffering uh, <laughs> on the skateboard scene <laughs> yeah I would have liked more Harlan Williams in this too but he <laughs> comes in and just <laughs> destroys his leg yeah. you do stop making so fucking much noise right yeah um That's a nasty compound fracture. You just got to go up and shove your tongue in it. Got to lick it a little bit. Yeah. So I could definitely see some people like, okay, you sticking your tongue in this open bloody wound is uh, not something you need to do here. <laughs> no, not at all. And so this is their, uh, he's visiting him in the hospital after his leg break. He just he just grabs it and shakes it up and down. And you get his dad also stomping on that same leg. <laughs> so he he guts this deer that's roadkill and puts it on like a fur coat. Yep. And decides to roll around on the highway in it. Yes, because uh, Dave Dave Davidson told him that he needed to get inside the animal. So yeah. he quite literally gets inside the animal. Yeah. I like that they cut to the other shot of the deer standing there staring at him like, what the hell is this guy doing? And then he gets plowed by an 18-wheeler. And this scene where the kid uh, falls and, like, bashes his face into the car door, uh, like... I watched it and I was like, what exactly happened there? I was like, all of a sudden the kid's running up, I hear a thud, and his face is bleeding profusely. And they go to that a lot. So it's like first the, the bottle, then the baseball to this kid's face. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this poor kid. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is this is the end of the movie, right? At the the airfield. Yeah. He gets a raw deal from the prop of the plane. Yeah. This the caning of her, uh, yep. her numb legs. Yeah, this definitely does not make it past the chopping room floor today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then in this scene as well, uh, you know, you hear the soundtrack. Like this movie's got an excellent soundtrack, so they definitely spent like good money on the licensing for these music rights um they did yeah yeah they just cut back I think to that, the uh, that's always been his kind of thing is like he's very into music and was kind of in tune with that kind of culture at the time yeah so, i mean sex pistols that was a great part of the movie. uh the ramones what else we yeah. got on there you got a. Uh, you got the Jay Z song in there, uh, Rick James, um, Moby on here, Eric B and Rakim. Like, this is a fantastic soundtrack, uh, and it just it doesn't even necessarily like fit with this movie. But again, when you're talking about yeah. the, like the absurdity of what Green was going for, he's like, I get to make a movie, I have the budget, I'm gonna get the songs that I want to be in here. Um, yeah, they're, they're just going over the hospital scene here where. Uh, He's swinging the baby over his head like a helicopter uh, yeah. to revive it after it's uh, not breathing when it comes out. But that first scene where it comes out and he's uh, like anchored to the bed via the umbilical cord, I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, yep. And then, oh, you gotta, you've got you to cut it. So he clearly, you know, the best option is to just stick it in your mouth. And... <laughs> Uh, it into separate pieces but um yeah as far as like the soundtrack goes and uh even the skateboarding scene i think it's just part and parcel of kind of like that era and that specific kind of um mood around things that was going on at the time so again you have like jackass you have that kind of stuff going on you also have like tony hawk's pro skater yeah um, definitely. tom green Tom Green was a skateboarder. He did the skateboarding scenes himself in the movie. Yeah, he did all um, his own stunts. Yeah, so he was he was tuned into that kind of stuff. So I think that that lends itself not only to the film, you know, but the soundtrack being as good as it is in general. Yeah, yeah. and as I'm looking through the cast here, it's like I mentioned Harlan Williams, who has been in some other movies that I would say are like maybe like bad movies that I've really liked as well. Um, Anthony Michael Hall is uh the animation exec who is that gord is trying to get approval from and yep. i see like eddie k thomas i thought him and tom green actually had really good chemistry as brothers like i just wish there was maybe like more of that like if i were trying to like yeah. okay like i really want to make this movie like 
quote unquote good. Like I felt that they had a really good sibling rivalry dynamic that uh, just isn't in there that much because the mo- majority of the focus is on uh, Tom Green and Rip Torn together. And they're also fantastic together. So I can't really like knock it too much, but just seeing him in that role, like in the first scene where he's getting the LeBaron and like, they're kind of just going back and forth over it. Um, I'm like, yeah, it really, it, it actually hits home of like, okay, these do feel like brothers that have had this kind of like back and forth, for many years that we just are only stumbling upon now. But in yeah. watching this, I did not remember Drew Barrymore was in this at all. And she's got a small like cameo as uh, Mr. Davidson's receptionist. But at the time, like her and yep. Tom Green were either dating or already married at that time. So it does make yep. some sense that she's in it. Um, and I was going to ask you of the stuff that you heard in the clips, there's uh, probably some stuff that, uh, didn't make it um well there's definitely some stuff that didn't make it in there in terms of like the best clips um yeah one of them i think that was my favorite that was kind of subtle was i i think it's after rip torn takes the skate ramp out of the house and runs it over in the middle of the street and uh tom green is out there with uh, uh julie haggerty who plays his mom and he's asking her, like, why are you with dad? Like, he's such a bad person. Like, you should leave. And if I were you, I'd be, like, just sleeping with, like, Greeks and athletes <clears throat> and, like, doing all this stuff. And, like, her yeah. face, she's kind of, like, daydreaming the fantasy out as uh, Tom is, like, re- saying that long monologue to her. <laughs> um and just to even have a scene in a film where the son is not only telling his mom to leave his dad, but telling her to like basically just sleep with everybody that she's ever wanted to sleep with um, is something that like you yep. would never see now. And she ends up, you know, uh, with, with Shaq, Shaq at some point. Yeah, I didn't remember Shaq was in this <laughs> yeah. movie either. I was like, oh, man, like yep. they got Shaq to come in and do a cameo. Like, OK, so there's definitely some people who we're on board with what this idea was uh, that were, you know, bigger names than maybe Tom Green was at the time. And I think that says a lot about like bringing the script to these people and being like, I want to get involved in this project. Yeah. This is the height of like the Lakers dynasty too, (laughs) Shaq and Colby. So I really wonder how much of that $18 million budget went to securing Shaq for a 30 second scene. Right. (laughs) but yeah, that I think that's definitely one of the uh, one of the highlights, one of the best parts of the movie, especially since you get that kind of like callback to earlier on in the movie. I think it's kind of like brilliant writing that you have there because you wouldn't think that Tom Green would have like the foresight to plant the seed for something like that and then circle back to it later and have it hit the way that it did. But then you have to remember that, you know, obviously he's a professional comedian. Yeah, and since you mentioned that, there's a story that I was listening to him tell about a scene that was removed that um, was a character that had to be removed altogether, and it'll give some insight into like where his mind was at in terms of the writing. When he goes to work at the cheese sandwich factory in the beginning, it was supposed to be his uncle's factory. And he was going to like walk in on his uncle, like making out with his husband. And so he's like, yeah, at the time, like the focus groups didn't like the gay kissing scene. So 
we had to like take that out of the movie. But then because they took that out of the movie, he had to remove like four or five other scenes with this actor who played his uncle. And it kind of like it disjointed things a little bit. But that tells you that it's like, look, I know this is absurd, but like I had a character introduction. I had like scenes plotted out for like his character arc. And once we took out the first one, I couldn't then have all of the other scenes in there with him because none of that would have made sense. So it's like, despite the absurdity of everything around it, he was still very conscious of the story that he was telling. Yeah. And he, um, thinking back to that scene too, the cheese sandwich scene, um, when I had the DVD or whatever as a kid and I would Mm -hmm. be watching this, I think they have some of those in the deleted scenes, but you don't get the full context of like it being his uncle or anything like that. But you do have more of the cheese sandwich goings on in those deleted scenes. Um, I think that there's one in particular that I thought was hilarious when I thought originally, but he, um, he grabs this massive sausage and Mm -hmm. he hops up on the conveyor belt at the cheese sandwich factory. And he's like, miming that it's an appendage of his mm-hmm. and keeps saying like ding dong ding dong over and over again and like the there's these other like little old ladies that are working on the line making these cheese sandwiches and here he is just scooting past from left to right across your screen <laughs> like just gently hitting them in the face with this as he passes by yes, and these his... women aren't even like acting appalled they're not breaking character they're not breaking their stride at all they're just focused on making these cheese sandwiches while this man is up just acting a complete fool going past them the entire time yeah like in watching that scene i'm like okay like this is you know low-hanging fruit so to speak in terms of the humor it's a dick joke with a phallic object like that's not highbrow it's not highbrow comedy at all but what actually like to me is the funny part of that scene is what you said about the ladies, like they don't respond to him at all. They just go about making their cheese sandwiches. And to speak to Tom Green's writing before he goes out there, he's there's a scene where he says very like forwardly, there's probably these people that have been making their cheese sandwiches their entire lives. They're going to look at me like I'm some kind of loser. And then you fast forward, like, you know, maybe 10 minutes in the movie. And there it is where it's like, these are all professionals, like working a normal job, like going about their day, making cheese sandwiches. And he, (laughs) he can't help, but like make it a self-fulfilling prophecy that uh, like, it's his own insecurity that like, I couldn't sit here and like make these cheese sandwiches as good as these people that leads me to get up and behave like this and fulfill that prophecy of like, Oh, this kind of negative self image of he's a loser. And that's kind of this theme that actually underlies the entire film. And it's him learning, it's him learning how to combat that. That really is the story arc for the character and like finding someone that believes in him because it's that relationship with his dad. that's constantly tearing him down. That doesn't put him in a position of confidence where he actually can succeed with the thing that he wants to do. Right. And I, I think that's part of the reason why I latched onto this movie kind of in the way that I did just because um, I think at the time that I was really into this movie, I was going through a lot of those same themes in my own life um, where I just felt like more of the outcast and more of like the awkward, like 
I was into movies like this. I was into music that people weren't into at the time. Like um, my parents were both blue collar factory workers and they were a lot like uh, Rip Torn in this movie where, you know, there's like a certain expectation of this is how you live your life. This is how you do things. Like this is the responsible way to do it. Everything's by the book. And I just never got on with that kind of thought process, especially not back then. So I think those kind of elements really spoke to me. And especially like later on in life around those scenes of like working in a factory where you're surrounded by people that, you know, just day in and day out are punching this time clock and they're doing the same things over and over and over again. And they're content to live life that way and more power to them. I worked in a factory for five years and I absolutely hated it. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. And um, nothing about doing that made me, in my opinion, a better person. So I, I kind of have that now is more of a like tool or more of like context in my own life for why it kind of speaks to me a little bit more. And working at that factory is where I found one of the other people that I know that actually does like this movie and <laughs> working from 11 p.m. at night to 7 a.m. in the morning with nothing to listen to but the sound of machines going on and off and whatever. We passed a lot of time by just quoting various scenes from this movie back and forth to each other because we were both, you know, the same kinds of people that. We didn't want to be there. We hated it. And we're looking for more out of life and more meaning out of our lives than just being a cog in the machine. So I think that for people that do stick the movie out and they do watch the whole thing, I think that that underarching, overarching theme of the movie about um, kind of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole yeah. uh, would translate to a lot of people yeah i think it's even more so like later on in the movie (laughs) i'm sorry Uh, no when he when he goes back home and you know he gets this reception from his dad like oh you're you're a quitter mike fitzgibbon's son is a nuclear physicist and my son can't even can eat a chicken sandwich and like all this other stuff that goes on like I've been in that position too. Like I've had to come home with my tail tucked between my legs and then have to deal with that. And then, you know, Gord goes back out and goes back out to Hollywood and he's not finding the success. So he gets another job in the cheese sandwich industry (laughs) working at like this, this sandwich shop. And his boss is like a 16 year old kid. And he's dealing with these unruly customers all day and they're making his life a living hell. So he takes it out on them again. And he goes through this like second wave of just like, yeah, this definitely isn't for me. I need to do my own thing. And that's like the final breaking point for him. He throws 10 pounds of cheese on this guy's sandwich. Uh, yeah, and he's visibly uh, frustrated when he's doing that and then proceeds to quit right after that. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, had we not already covered it, 
like why you associate with this movie, why you love it. But I think you gave a very robust answer, uh, like a very personal answer. And I appreciate that. So I think we can skip over that. Yeah. Um, I want to share with you the uh, Ebert and Roper uh, review segment about this because like they famously hated this movie. And I think the interview, uh, I, remember this yeah, I, I think the interview is just uh, funny. So I, I'm going to go ahead and play it. I think it's a couple minutes long. Um, Before we even do that, mm-hmm. I with without having seen this or, you know, without even having to, I don't think I've seen this movie in about 10 years, but I think that, you know, once I saw that we were going to be going over the, uh, the Siskel and Ebert kind of review of it, mm-hmm. I, if I, re- if I recall correctly, Roger Ebert absolutely eviscerates Rip Torn for involving himself in this movie. Uh, that's I don't remember I- hearing it, but I'm going to play the clip. But uh, funny you mentioned that this uh, the role that Rip Torn plays was actually offered to both Jerry Stiller and Gene Wilder. But they both turned it down because they thought the script was offensive. <laughs> So credit to Rip Torn for actually stepping into those shoes and understanding like where the humor in that character actually is because like he is abusive. He is horrible, but I think he plays it in, in just the right tone, like a little bit more and it's too much, a little bit less and it's not enough. But I think he walked like right on the line where he needed to for that because he was super enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh we'll see we'll see what they have to say. I think I got this queued up to the right spot. All right, cool. Are you really excited about starting to work at the sandwich factory tomorrow? Hello, can you hear me? There's probably people at the factory that have been making cheese sandwiches their entire lives and they're gonna look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And they're gonna call me a loser. Tom Green wants to be an animator, but he keeps getting hired to make cheese sandwiches, and Freddie got fingered one of five new movies this week. I'm Richard Roper. And I'm Roger Ebert, and what is the most disgusting film of 2001? <laughs> well, let's see. In a field that includes Sea Spot Run, Monkey Bone. Tomcat I like and Monkey Joe Bone Dirt, so and Joe Dirt. Yeah. The champion is Freddie Got Fingered with Tom Green making David Spade look like Jim Carrey and Jim Carrey look like Lawrence Olivier. It's a volatorium <laughs> of a movie starring Green as Gord, an obnoxious retard who makes it his life. Called him an obnoxious oh, retard. He's going to have to walk that one back. Life for Gord is an exercise in manic excess. Even taking a shower leads to the toilet. Gord goes to Los Angeles looking for work and hopes animation executive Anthony Michael Hall will hire him. Uh, I'm Dave Davidson. Is there a problem? Mr. Davidson? Yes, I am. Really? Yeah, yeah, officer, really. Is there a problem here? I'm not really a cop. My name's Gord, and I want to meet you to show you my drawings. Your drawings? Are you kidding? These scenes make Freddy Got Fingered look merely like a low-rent version of Adam Sandler, but this movie pays no rent at all. On TV, we can't show you the scene where Green swings a newborn baby around his head by its umbilical cord, or two <laughs> scenes involving the sexual organs of a stallion and a bull elephant, or when he skins a deer and runs around wearing its bloody carcass, or any of the jokes about... <laughs> he could have showed that. 
The MPAA they could have. It's in the trailer. That's definitive evidence that the MPAA ratings board is morally adrift and that we need a workable adult rating for movies like this. You're absolutely right. This is ground zero. It has to be ground zero of bad comedies. And Tom Green with this horse and with this elephant. If a woman was Interesting choice that, of words for 2001. would be banned in Tijuana, let yeah. alone getting an R rating. <laughs> and it's just so horrible. And he's such an unfunny guy. He should be flipping burgers somewhere. Why is Tom Green getting movies? And who, who wants to see this guy? You know, even in a stupid comedy, there has to be a setup before yeah. you have a punchline. Mm -hmm. This is just, hey, let's just do a bunch of punchlines. And the punchlines are, let's do gross out stuff. Let's you know, do jokes, like you said, about child molestation, but there's nothing even set up the bad taste humor. I know. I want to get into a little theory here. I yeah. think that humor works if you make fun of somebody's character, mm -hmm. but not if you make fun of their status. Okay. Now, in, if there's something funny about a person, then that's a legitimate target. But the scene of the pregnant woman in the hospital who goes into labor and he rips the baby out of her womb and swings it around his head, that woman is not set up in any way, I mean, how could she be, yeah. as a comic target. She is frightened. She is in pain. She is terrified. And then he brings the baby back to life by swinging it around his head and keeps yeah. saying, I saved the day, I saved that's, the day. That's so funny. And that's so funny. I'm sitting there in the audience yeah. feeling sad and sick. For, for everybody, not just for us watching it, yeah. but for the yeah. people who worked on this movie. So that's enough with Freddie Got Fingered for us. Okay. So that's, I mean, it's actually kind of funny watching those two talk about it and completely like they're not the audience for it at all and they took it way too seriously but like famously they hated this i think uh roger ebert named it the worst movie of 2001 which doesn't seem surprising at all given what he just said but yeah yeah i would agree with that i think it's funny how he he keeps mentioning the the scene where he delivers the baby and talks about the woman being um terrified and scared and all this stuff which she was but if i Again, if I recall correctly, she she thanks him after all of it. She does. Like, in the movie. So that part's kind of glossed over in his, um, in his repulsion from the scene. But I, obviously not. I'm not uh, advocating for anyone swinging a baby around by its umbilical cord above their head. But in the comedic context of it, in the comedic context of the movie, all ends up being well. You know, nobody's nobody's harmed. He saves the day, whatever, like he says a bunch of times. And then the woman actually thanks him. And of course, what adds to the absurdity and kind of the comedy of that scene is we have these like shaman women that are also in the room. Right? What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> that are like performing some kind of, you know, ritualistic like seance or something as this baby is being delivered. And then you've got Harlan Williams's character in the bed in the same room too. So, like, what's going on in this hospital? Why are we housing expectant mothers with like these other random indigenous women and this guy that has a compound fracture to his leg? <laughs> and you're just letting anybody walk into this room and visit too. Um, but yeah, I considering the the uh, astute nature of um, Ebert and Roper and, you know, people like that. Like we touched on earlier with the newspaper um, people and, you know, critics and reviewers and stuff like that, they have um, a certain standard that they have to hold everything to. And they have 
a certain like sense of decorum that they feel held to when it comes to films like this. So I can't necessarily fault them for looking at it in that kind of light at the end of the day. But I am going to do more research after this and I'm going to see if I can find um, where Roger Ebert talks more about the film and specifically Rip Torn's role in it because I think that before the film came out, he regarded Rip Torn as like this, you know, serious um, veteran actor that and like held him in a certain regard. And then he does this film and uh, Ebert just absolutely takes him to task on having accepted this role (laughs) and being part of this film. Yeah, there is kind of like a weird uh, stuck up nature amongst like elite film critics. And for the most part, I like Roger Ebert. Uh, like, so I'm not like trying to, you know, be smart him or anything. But yeah, the idea that like you're not allowed to have just have fun at a movie, right? Like the way he's yeah. describing the woman in this scene, like I think he's projecting a little bit. It's like, okay, well she's annoyed that Tom green is there and she's like scared when the baby comes out, not breathing, but it's not set up as like, she's terrified of the moment of giving birth. Like she's worried that the doctor's not there. She's annoyed by this guy being here, but like this idea that like, Oh my God, it's this terrified woman. And this weird man is just like taking out, uh, like his, uh, disgusting fantasy, like on her, like, is not, I don't think an accurate description of what's going on there. Um, but you know, Roger Ebert was never going to be the guy that likes this movie. And I think that's totally understandable, but because of that, um, I want to go to the Larry King live interview where they talk to Tom Green and you actually get to hear like the real Tom Green who's removed from doing the show, who's 20 years removed from making this movie. Uh, And I think he actually has some very interesting insight on uh, the film itself and the question that was posed here. uh, Let me uh, screen share. Actually, the question that's posed to him in this interview is about a sequel to this film. So let me grab that. And there we go. He asks, any chance of you doing a sequel to Freddy Got Fingered? Can I pitch something? Yeah. Uh Uh-oh, Freddy Got Fingered again. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Well, maybe you could produce that. Yeah, I'll write it. No problem. I'll do it all. Um, Any plans? I mean, it's a cult favorite. There's been people have asked uh, uh, quite a bit about that online, you know, and uh, and, uh, I would would consider doing something like that. it's hard. It's hard to. It's a. It's a tough pitch. You know. It's a tough pitch to it's go, tough pitch go back to 20th time. Century Fox and yeah. say, Hey, you want to do that again? Right. I know we only won <laughs> five Razzies the first time. Maybe we can double that. You know. But <laughs> when you pitched it, did you have like a, a way of couching the idea of fingering? Were you like fingered, like you got pointed at, mm-hmm. or did you just say, Well, no, there's no, you got fingered. So we had written a script. I had this show was on MTV was doing well and uh, I was getting asked to be in movies, and my friend and I uh, wrote this script because we wanted to write something kind of weirder than what we were, what was out there. Right. And so, uh, you know, we originally sold the script to, um, to Disney, actually, to Touchstone Pictures, and then they, they kind of read the script after they 
and said, you know, we can't do this or 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 this, but we still like the movie, but we can't do this or this or this or this or this or this. And I said, well, you know, we have to do this, 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 this. And then they said, well, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna do this, but we'll put it in turnaround. And then 20th Century Fox bought the script a few weeks later, and we went made it with with New Regency Pictures, and and you know, Arnon Milshon, who was the is the head of New Regency, let me have my creative freedom. It was sort of an incredible, you know, leap of faith. So yeah, it was it was nice to see him in that moment, like be very honest, be very candid. And it's like he's so, I think, reserved in comparison to the character that we see, at least like since I've seen him since then. Uh, like I have a much better appreciation for him as like the mind behind the madness. And you saw his face like when they when they had mentioned like is it possible to do a sequel he's like i'm in like i don't think we're going to be able to like get it financed and get it made but i would be interested in doing it if it's possible but i like that they were able to like have fun with the idea of like can you imagine going back to 20th century fox and being like remember what we did the first time well we want to do that again give us 18 million dollars again and just the fact that like that's not going to happen yeah I think it kind of speaks to what we already touched on and like how he kind of knew or he kind of knows at this point now, looking back on it, that, you know, no regrets, but it it wouldn't happen again. And it wouldn't, at least not the same way. So you know, I would love to see him kind of go back to those characters and just see what he would do with them. Um, just for my own, like sick, sadistic benefit, I guess. But I think that there are ways that he could go about doing that. Now, I think if he, you know, we've kind of seen this with trailer park boys is the first thing that comes to my mind, but where they're not really carried by Netflix or anything like that anymore for making their new content. And they're just releasing it straight to their like paid fan site. Mm-hmm. And I could see him doing something like that and just having you know, he would have full creative control and he would have, you know, direct to him payment and like access to everything that goes on with that and not have to deal with all of the the red tape and politics of the filmmaking industry. So if it ever was going to happen, I would venture to guess that that would kind of be the, the route that would get taken. Um, but obviously like love Tom Green um, always have loved him as a person. Um, and even after all of, you know, seeing his show, seeing everything like that, kind of forgot about him for a while. He kind of took a break from doing a lot of things. And a couple of years ago, he was actually on celebrity big brother. And my wife is like, my wife is a huge big brother fan. Mm -hmm. So seeing him on there and just seeing Tom green, being himself um, in a group of other people. I think like Ricky Williams was on that season too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that one. Um, what's his name? The dude that was living with OJ. Al Cowling. Uh, no, not Al Cowling's the, uh, the surfer, like pizza oh, delivery Kato, boy dude. Kato Kalen. Yeah. Kato Kalen. Yep. He was on that as well. Uh, like Tamar Braxton. Um, people like that but just seeing him kind of being in his own element and seeing more of like the genuine tom green um 
he's a really endearing dude. Yeah. Um, obviously like cancer survivor, he went through all that stuff Yeah. as well. Like during the making of the movie and the show and everything and kind of, you know, his ability to be able to adapt to that and kind of, um, do like self-deprecating inward facing humor about his situation with that as well. Um, I have nothing but nice things to say about Tom green. Um, especially in, you know, days like today, just his outlook on certain things in life and, um, the viewpoint that he has, I think that he, you know, is an ally. Um, I think that he is just a good dude in general. And, you know, part of that has to do with making this film and kind of being humbled in that way. So, um, anything that I see him in, I'm happy to see him, um, happy to see him, you know, still being asked about the film, still doing well. So all that's great to me. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you your final thoughts 21 years later, but I think you beat me to the punch and really covered that ground very well. In looking at this film now, I don't know that I would go as far as to say that I love it. I enjoyed it, and I have a much greater appreciation for what the film is and more respect for Tom Green and what he was doing in that point and time in the movie world. Uh, And like you said, like Tom seems like a really like genuinely nice guy. Uh, He's gone through a lot and you had mentioned the uh, he's a cancer survivor. And if I was Mm -hmm. reading correctly in the trivia, there's a scene in the film where there's some surgery on television and it's actually his cancer removal surgery that they're watching in that scene. So the ability to, like you said, look inwardly kind of like be self deprecating and like, just still have a sense of humor about it. You know, I think that goes a long way and it's probably why the people like yourself that love Tom green and have been fans of him for a long time have stuck with him and why this film actually does have a pretty strong cult following despite generally being uh poorly scored uh across the board so i think that yeah, i think that's something. i think if you it, you have to have like the stars and the galaxy perfectly aligned you have to have that perfect history of trauma and circumstances in your life to kind of get where he's coming from a little bit more um, you kind of have to be the outcast. You have to be um, the the kid that's not the favorite, right? Because that's another strong theme of the movie is that like Freddie's the golden child. Freddie does everything right, and I kind of felt like that um, as far as more of like my family as a whole and like my grandparents and stuff, and kind of how they treated my cousins as opposed to me where there's like some clear favoritism and stuff going on. I think that you, if you're the kind of person that has had those kind of experiences with like not fitting in with, you know, dealing with backlash about your family for certain things, if you're a more artistic person and you've kind of just been beaten down about that for your whole life, I think this is a movie that you can connect with. Um, If you're not somebody that's had those kind of experiences in your life, it's just not going to sit the same with you. Um, 
So that's kind of where I'm at with it. I love it for those reasons. I love it because it really signifies like a certain time and certain point in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And because, you know, there's memories and there's circumstances that are attached to that movie um, with the people that I have found that also care about it as well as to why it holds like a little bit more of a special place in my heart, just based on that, because of the instant ability to make a connection with somebody over it, because it is that polarizing. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was a little worried when I agreed to do this episode about this movie, to be honest, I was like, wow, this movie is so negatively reviewed. Like, can I, can, am I even going to be able to find something like redeeming in it, having not seen it in 20 plus years? Like, am I going to be able to find something redeeming in it that makes me come around to it? So like, I feared that I wouldn't be able to, like, I was like, oh man, you're going to have to carry this conversation because I'm not going to have anything to say. And through watching it, through reading about it, through listening to Tom talk about it, like I gained a much greater appreciation for it. And then being able to sit down with you and have you articulate your views, uh, your connection to this movie so well and so fluidly. Um, I really appreciate you bringing this one to the table. I appreciate you spending the last hour and 15 minutes talking to me about this. And I appreciate you pulling much more out of me than I expected that I was going to get from this film. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot and I didn't know that I was going to beforehand. So I appreciate the challenge as well. I'm going to let you go. But uh, yeah, um, you can really you can go ahead and have your you. final thoughts. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate you, Nick, for having me on. Um, I've enjoyed our interactions so far. Um, me too. So I'm I'm happy that you were, I guess, willing to to talk about this movie first and foremost, and then to have me on and kind of go over thoughts about it with me. Um, if you ever need me back for anything else you know where to find me. Uh, if you ever do some uh, Star Wars prequels and sequels, I'm your guy. <laughs> we may. Uh, <laughs> we'll, pro- we'll probably go with Spawn first because I really do like Spawn. Spawn, fantastic movie, kind of the same thing. <laughs> Watched it with my cousin, but um, doing that one now, it's been so long since I've seen it. And uh, we've got some really dated CGI there, so that could be fun as well. Yeah. Probably will be. Um, do you want to let people know where to find you on Twitter? I know where to find you, and I can share that stuff around. But if you want to say it yourself, you're more than welcome to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, KD Carlson 15 on Twitter. You can find me on there. Um, that's probably my most used form of communication, at least online. So uh, you can find me there. I'll be happy to talk about movies, uh, sports, anything that you want to talk about. I mean, you are Corey, the football guy, so definitely he'll be engaging about football. Yep. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much. Like that hour and 20 minutes or so breezed right by. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope that 
others that are going to be able to listen to this are going to kind of see the passion that you have for this and kind of that connective tissue that bonds you to this and have an appreciation for that. Um, and again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, and take care. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Um, everybody out there, take care. And it's okay to like something that not everybody else likes. Find, find the things that make you happy and uh, attach yourself to those things. Don't worry about fitting in somebody else's box. Wise words. Thank you so well, much. Take, <laughs> take care, my Thanks, guy. Nick. I'll yep. talk, to you, talk soon. to you soon. Thanks once again to Corey for not only stopping by and recording with me, but for also bringing a movie to the table that I never had on my radar. It was an interesting experience, and I think I was able to turn a corner, and I really appreciated that our discussion ventured into some important personal stuff that went beyond the scope of just a movie. So thanks, Corey, and thank you to everybody who listened to this episode. It might sound cliche, but I know you've got a lot of options when it comes to your entertainment, and the fact that you chose to spend this hour and some change with me does mean a lot. I still believe that word of mouth is the best way to help, so if you enjoyed the show, please tell somebody about it. But rating the show, liking, subscribing, all that stuff helps out a lot as well. And until next time, stay safe, take care, and be well.